Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And this is the narrative of the, the Magi, the kings of the East, coming to Bethlehem following the star and uh, worshiping the, the newborn king, the child Jesus. The Gospel itself, of course, presents all sorts of historical problems. But one thing we want to keep in mind that whatever the actual facts were behind this, this phenomenon that we're, that we're talking about today, the gospel does not make things up. There's some kind of historical foundation, some kind of historical root, and some kind of Old Testament connections in the story that we're going to hear. We have to remember a couple of things as we enter into the story of this gospel. One of those things is, is that especially in the Gospel of Matthew, he does two things. He's totally dependent on the precursor to the Gospel, and that is the Old Testament to the prophecies and the law and so forth. But he also is speaking to the church as it is existing in his own day and time that uh, the writing of the Gospel of St. Matthew is somewhere mid-first century, and, uh, and so the church is already established. The community is already gathering. Um, they're gathering for Eucharist. As of, of this time, at least, some of them are still gathering for the Word and, and for prayer and so forth in the synagogues. So it's not the clearly defined early Christian church. It's during the transition of the Christian church from being people who gather in the synagogue to people who gather among themselves, the followers of the disciples of Jesus. They obviously don't celebrate the Eucharist in the synagogue. It becomes kind of separate from the rest of the liturgy. We find images of that even in the New Testament. We find, uh, especially in the story of the road to Emmaus in the Gospel of Luke, we, we find kind of a, a paradigm of the Mass. The seekers come seeking. They unknowingly encounter the Lord. They listen to His Word. They take His Word into themselves and then recognize it as the Word of God in the breaking of the bread. Well, here we have in the Gospel of Luke now part of the catechesis, part of the story of how the church came to be and the fact that the church also is now including the Gentiles. As we ponder all of that, we find another kind of lesson in this gospel, that there is a common experience where once Christianity gets settled into the culture, once, since an, once uh, Christianity gets settled into the everyday practice of Christian people, that there comes kind of a confusion of priorities. We know, for instance, that culture can carry the faith, and we know that perhaps that a great deal of what happened in this country was Catholicism was strong when we retained our ethnic groups because the cultures from which those groups came, from Italy, from, from Ireland, from Germany and France and so forth, that they supported the faith, that they were, they were those cultures were imbued with the faith. And so the people, in the integrity of their whole lives, they lived the Catholic faith. When those ethnic groups began to dissipate and began to break up, 
When our Catholic school system was almost too successful, it was able to mainstream us into American society. And the American society we're mainstreamed into was part secular and part Protestant. And that culture infected Catholicism in this country and made it very, very difficult to sustain a profoundly, deeply Catholic culture. And any time, and we find even now, the attempts that are made to re-infuse Catholicism into the culture are deeply resisted. And it seems to be, in some way, then, a, uh, you know, an attack on our way of life, um, an attack on, uh, on the level of accommodation that we've come to between a, a non-Catholic culture and a Catholic faith. So it's a real tension that we have. And of course, here in this gospel, they were in, in the process then of becoming a Christian community within the midst of Jerusalem, within the midst of Israel. Matthew is addressing that transitional culture. And he is addressing the Christianity as it begins to emerge from its Jewish roots and as it begins to find its own independent feet within the history of the development of, 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 our, of our faith. And, uh, and so we're going to find all sorts of things in it which seem to us at times confusing. One of the things to remember is this, that those who were imbued with the culture of Judaism not with the faith necessarily, but with the culture, were the first ones to resist the coming of the Messiah, the first to see it as an existential threat to their way of life. And we still find that those cult Catholics who have absolutely acclimated themselves to a non-Catholic American culture find any attempt to re-Catholicize our, our culture of ourselves as a people as a threat to their way of life and as a challenge to their way of life. And so this, this is something that's gone on from the days of the New Testament. So we want to look at the gospel in that light, and we want to look at the gospel in that kind of a setting, because the lessons are dramatic if we, if we see it that way, if we see it as a conflict between belief and a culture that has grown comfortable with itself and become less comfortable with the challenges that come from faith in the covenant. So let's look at the gospel now and see. After Jesus had been born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod, some wise men came to Jerusalem from the east. Where is the infant king of the Jews, they asked. We saw his stars and have come to do him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was greatly perturbed, and so was the whole of Jerusalem. And he called together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, notice, he's not saying that if there is a Christ to be born, where the Christ is. He knows it's part of the tradition. He knows there is an anointed one. He knows there is a Messiah. And the terror that strikes him is that when these wise men or magi or kings or whatever we want to call them come from Persia following the star of Bethlehem and confront Jerusalem and Herod with the truth of their own faith, they become greatly perturbed. And so Herod inquires of the scribes and the chief priests, where is this going to happen? It's, it's, 
isn't it fascinating? It isn't, I don't believe this happened. It's, yeah, I know this is going to happen. Now, where is it? And they answer him at Bethlehem in Judea. And they told him, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. So what do they do immediately? The chief priests and the scribes, they know also. They know to go back to the prophet Micah and be able to search out and find that this king whom the Magi have come to visit, this king will be born in Bethlehem. It's already prophesied. And here is Matthew once again reaching deeply back into the, New into the Old Testament, seeking the prophets in order to explain what happened, the phenomenon of the birth of the Christ, of the birth of the Messiah. And then the following of the star. The star becomes very important in Old Testament prophecy. For instance, in Numbers 24, 17, Balaam's prophecy, he talks about the star of Jacob will rise and draw the people and so forth. And so the star comes out of the book of Numbers into the Gospel of Matthew. It is the star of Jacob. It is the star that denotes the triumph of Israel. And then even to the point where the Magi, who, who were these Magi, wise men, kings, whatever we want to call them, that nomenclature belongs to a group from Persia, the Zoroastrian priests. And the Zoroastrian priests were, uh, belonged to a re religion that was somewhat monotheistic. Uh, they believed in the sun as the god, and so all of the portents of the heavens were the communications of the god to humanity, to the people of the earth. So their task was therefore to interpret the, to interpret the cosmos into the life from the signs they would find in the heavens to interpret those as in, in order to instruct the people of the earth. That was what the Zoroastrian priests did. So basically, they worshiped the light. Um, interestingly enough, um, the Gospel of John tells us that the Word is the light, that Jesus is the light. And so there is now this very interior connection between the prophecies of Balaam, between the task of the Zoroastrian priests, and the understanding of the role that uh, the heavens play, that the Creator plays in the life of faith of the people, and also, also speaks to us about the person of Jesus in terms of the light, the star, the light, the, so forth. Um, according to John, we can interpret that as Messiah, as Christus, as Jesus. So we can say basically that the Zoroastrian priests perceived within a heavenly body the, the person of the Word who became flesh in Bethlehem. Okay. And so we, we want to put that in the back of our minds when we're reading and interpreting Matthew's gospel because Matthew is stirring all of this up in order to speak to the church of Jerusalem. And then he says, then we see all at once this cultural problem that we discovered, that Judaism had become a culture for many and not a faith, something we experience today as well. We have people who are caught cultural Catholics who believe nothing the Catholic Church teaches. And then a, a protest, of course, that they are the true Catholics and that they want, to, um, they want to hijack the faith and turn it into their culture. And so there is, there is a tremendous conflict, and a conflict that is filled with as much hatred 
as we find here in the gospel with Herod and what the, Matthew says, all of Jerusalem, which is, of course, uh, not all of Jerusalem, but a popular, what he's saying is a popular idea. Herod summons the Magi to see him privately, and he asks them the exact date on which the star had appeared, and then he sent them on to Bethlehem. All right, so he wanted to know exactly when this happened, because somewhere out there, there was a child. There was a child whom the heavens had testified to and had drawn even the Gentiles on a two-year journey from the far reaches of Persia to the city of Jerusalem. And so he said, when, when did this happen? And interestingly enough, they inform him that it was about two years ago because that's how long the journey took. And so Herod then says, well, you go and find all about this child. And when you have found him, let me know so that I too may go and do him homage. So Herod is deceitful. He is a liar. He is an unbeliever. He, like Satan, knows the faith, but he, like Satan, also does not honor, respect, or love the faith. And so he lies to them, and he tends to, intends to deceive them. And so having listened to what the king had to say, they then set out to Bethlehem, thinking nothing was amiss. And so they had fully intended, apparently, as the gospel goes on, to go back to Jerusalem and say, yes, we found him, and this is who he is, and this is where he is not realizing what Herod's real intentions were. Herod was a paranoid man. Um, he was terrified of anyone taking over his throne and taking over his position. In fact, as he murdered two of his own sons because he, was, he, he feared that they were trying to take his throne. Having listened to what the king had to say, they set out, not knowing Herod's paranoia. And there in front of them was the star that they had seen rising. And it went forward and halted over the place where the child was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and through him all things came to be, and without him nothing is. And he was the light of men, and the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness was not able to overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here is the story of John worked out in, in narrative in the Gospel of Matthew. And so the light, the star, the child converge in, in Jesus born in Bethlehem. The sight of the star filled them with delight, and going into the house they saw the child with his mother Mary, and falling to their knees they did him homage. So they realized that there were celestial portents of some kind, but all of this is not to be figured out in the light with astronomy. It's to be figured out in relationship to the meaning of light in the scriptures. From Genesis, when God speaks the word that is light, to John's gospel, when the light is the light of men and becomes flesh and dwells among us, to the star of Bethlehem, and actually also to be a recurring, a recurring theme in, in, the Jew, in Jewish history, that even they, they see it as a portent of the divine. And basically, during the Great Revolt of 135 AD, they named the great revolutionary Bar Kokhba, the son of the star. In other words, in some way, shape, or form, the son, the son of light. And so this is thematic in the, in, in the, in the Bible. And we have to be aware of that. We have to know that.
And so then they came in and uh, they found the child with Mary, his mother. And falling down, they were, did him homage. For they had found that which the light, they had found the source of light. And so they did the source of light homage. And they gave him the royal gifts that they had brought with them of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But then, once again, the angel of the Lord interferes to protect the Holy Family and to protect the child. And in a dream, then, comes to the three magi and says to them, you know, warns them about Herod and about what his intentions probably are and urges them then to return and leads them in a return to their own country, but not through the city of Jerusalem. So this then is the story of Epiphany. And there is a deeper and there is also another theological implication of the, of the, of the theology of Epiphany. We have to remember and have said this often that the real feast of the incarnation is the 25th of March. It is the conception of the child Jesus in the womb and was so celebrated as such during the first two or three centuries of the church's life in Palestine. In this then, we have then two feasts of manifestation of the Incarnation. So Christmas is not the Feast of the Incarnation, it's the Feast of the Manifestation of the Incarnation, the Feast of the birth of the child who was conceived nine months before in the womb of Mary, his mother, and, and conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that means that the Father of Jesus was God. What we find is in the Western Church, that the feast of the first manifestation of the Lord was taken up on the 25th of December. There's a great deal of debate. Was that because they wanted a religious alternative to the feast of Saturnalia of the Romans? Or, or was it uh, a simple calculation from the traditional celebration of, of, of the feast of, of the incarnation, of the feast of the conception of Jesus, the Annunciation? Um, who knows what the truth of that matter is. But there is a second manifestation then, and the churches of the East follow the second manifestation, and that is the manifestation to the Gentiles, and that is the Feast of the Epiphany, which we celebrate today, which the Eastern Church celebrates as its Christmas. So the first manifestation is to the Jews, the poor of Yahweh, the poor of the Jews, the shepherds. That is immediate upon the birth of the Lord. Two years later, the manifestation is to the Gentiles who have come from the far ends of the earth. Once again, Matthew becoming aware that the church is spreading rapidly. Even the apostles themselves are in the far corners of the earth. What the difference is between Persia and India, for instance, who knows what the apostles knew? Who knows, knows what Matthew knew about that kind of geography? They knew they were far to the east is what they knew. And so from this far distance of the east, if these were Magi, if these were Zoroastrian priests, then, like I said before, they were on a two-year journey from Persia, modern-day Iran, um, to Jerusalem. There is a convergence, there is a theology behind this. The theology of the Incarnation as it manifests itself first to the chosen people and then to the world. And so the Epiphany is the feast of the manifestation of the Incarnation to the world, which is why the Eastern Church celebrates it. For it is, for the Eastern Church consists of Gentiles. 
and they therefore celebrate the great Gentile feast, the great manifestation, the coming of Jesus as, as Messiah, as Lord, into the, into the land of the Gentiles, into the hearts and the minds of the Gentiles. So this story, this narrative of the coming of the wise men from the East is one that has a very, very comprehensive grasp and look at the story of redemption, beginning with the prophecies of Balaam and the rising of the star of Jacob, and then moving forward into the cultural issues of religious people who try to follow the covenant but instead become, become dependent on the comforts of their culture and find true religion, true faith as, as a challenge to their position within the society. And we remark that we see that, we see that today, and we see it in the tremendous divisions within, within Christianity, the, the, the very severe divisions within Christianity that many have in, within, the, within the Catholic community, in, especially in the Western world, have adapted the posture of Herod. Don't bother us with faith. We have a religious culture that is good to us, makes us comfortable, and wants us, therefore, to be settled deep into something that we're familiar with, we're comfortable with, and we actually have kind of charge of because we can make it what we want it to be. We know that in American culture there is a, there is a real tendency to exaggerate the capacity of humanity to govern the cosmos. And it becomes almost, it becomes kind of the fruit of the sin of Eve that uh, you know, somehow or other we can be like God. He created the universe and we ourselves have the capacity to destroy it in a generation or two. And that of course is hubris and, and it of course is, is false. Can we damage the planet on which we live? We certainly can. Have we done it? We certainly have. Can we basically solve all the problems, change the course of the natural climate changes and all of that of the, of the planet Earth? No, we can do a lot to clean it up a bit and, and to make it a healthier place for man and beast and plant life. We can do a lot to do that, and we should because we've done a lot to, to destroy it. But to place the whole responsibility somehow or other saying, well, humanity can, can do this, you know, humanity can save the planet, well, probably not. But it is that kind of mindset that somehow or other we don't need God we only need ourselves. And if we can just whip everybody into shape, if we just force them and coerce them to think like we do, then all will be well. And of course, that's the sin of Eve. They will be just like God. And so the pride of humanity marches on and seeks its own comfort, its own level of, uh, of power and its own level of uh, comfort and its own level of vision and so forth and does so to the detriment of God's creation and to the detriment of the human spirit. So what we then can draw from the story that becomes very important for us is first of all, that God arranges for the salvation of humanity. 
He moves pieces and allows those pieces to open the hearts of those who are sincere, of open the hearts of those who can understand and see. It was the same way in the coming of the Messiah. Who recognized him? The ones that knew the old covenant. Who recognized him? The ones that were familiar with the prophets and the law. Who recognizes him in the modern day? Those who feel they themselves have the right to recreate a whole salvation history. Something unfortunately find unraveling not only in some of the more progressive American elements of Catholicism, but certainly also in the German synodal way. We find the temptation to desire to be like God. The very thing the serpent told Eve is something that has a strong grip on the human spirit and the human heart in every time and in every place. We turn to the child of Bethlehem. We turn and truly do him homage. We thank him for the gift of life, and we thank him for the gift of light, and we thank him for the gift of hope, and we thank him for the gift of all that we have and all that we can do. But we bow before him. We do not seek him out to destroy him. We seek him out to venerate him and do him homage. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then he